we had it on the game show network. And, you know, I, in the early days, I'd have women in their 60s and 70s saying, hey, I saw, saw you on TV. And I'm thinking, you're kidding me. Why would you be watching poker? They say, oh, I watch those game shows, but the poker one's for more money. So I like that the best. They didn't know poker. They barely knew which hand beat what, but they knew a lot of money was being passed around. And they, you know, they enjoyed the thrill of that. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 13, Before the Boom. When Barry Greenstein was inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame in 2011, He had a resume that fit perfectly with the criteria for the hall. By that time, he'd been playing poker professionally for about 40 years, and he was also a regular in high-stakes cash games. But it might help to establish what that means. The term high-stakes will mean different things depending on context. The best way to understand what we're talking about in this case would be to look at a series of matches that took place in the early 2000s where the billionaire Andy Beal, the founder of Beal Bank, took on a syndicate of top poker pros. Some of the pros actually played heads up against Beal, while others contributed to the team bankroll. The high-profile names in the alliance included Doyle Brunson, Chip Reese, Jennifer Harmon, Howard Lederer, and Ted Forrest, among others. Here's Barry Greenstein talking about this match. The first time Andy Beal came in the Bellagio and played... He played a stake that was higher than we played. And Ted Forrest, I think, played in that game. Ted's not afraid of anything. And uh, I can't remember if he won or lost. And then Andy came back and wanted to play bigger. And so what we did is we got a group of people together and uh, all contributed. Now, for most of the time when Andy played, like I remember one of the times, it was we we had 16 people put up $500,000. So it was like uh, uh, an $8 million bankroll. So I had one sixteenth, and we were playing thirty and sixty thousand limit poker. So if you divide that by sixteen, my stake was approximately two thousand four thousand. Well, the game that I was regularly playing at the time was four thousand eight thousand limits. So when I played with Andy Beal, I was playing for half of what I normally played. And Andy, despite what people think, was actually a good player. Uh, and I would have a much better earn, is the word we usually use. Uh, you know, expected value is the mathematical term. Playing in my four and eight thousand game for twice the stakes against the players I was playing against. We have some businessmen in the game as well as professional players. So none of us really wanted to play against Andy Beal of the people who played in the biggest game. Now the people who played slightly lower in the divested, it maybe was big to them, bigger than their normal stake. We had a people whose normal stake maybe was a thousand, two thousand. So now they were playing double. And even some people who played smaller, you know, took maybe a piece of that five hundred thousand that would make up one share. So all of us in the big game didn't want to play Andy because we played bigger on our own. And what happened is the first day we played, uh, when we had this consortium, uh, Doyle was like the captain, was made the captain, but really said, Barry, you figure it out. And I said, well, I don't want to play. And then Chip says, well, actually, you have to play. And I said, why is that? He said, because Andy wants to start at 730 in the morning. And I said, so what? He says, well, just about everyone else we have, you know, they're poker players. 
They play all night. None of them are awake at 7.30 in the morning. They go to bed at 4 or 5. You're the only one we can trust to get sleep and play at 7.30 in the morning. There are some important points to make related to this match. First is that if you're a top poker pro and you can either flip coins against other pros or try to win money from ambitious amateurs like Andy Beal, which would you prefer? But that also doesn't mean that it's just target practice. Beal was an obsessed student of the game, and he was doing things in the early 2000s, like randomizing decisions, that have become more popular since then. In fact, Beal won a number of the sessions versus individual players, and the money seesawed back and forth. Uh, the first time, he almost busted the whole poker room, you know, because he was ahead. There was a, before we had it really organized, yeah, Andy uh, had people scared. It looked like, we, I remember Doyle saying, if Andy wins all this money, set of 4,000, 8,000, we're all going to be playing two and 400. Uh, you know, if he, because Andy did get a lead a few times. And like I said, he was very skilled. But what he did, which was too much for him to handle, was he was playing a rotating group of professional players who not only meant they were, it not only meant they were rested as each one went in, but they're also discussing what he does. And we'd bring in a new player, one guy who maybe was a more aggressive player, one guy was more passive player. Just think how hard that was. No one could have won under the circumstances that Andy put him in. And so that's why we won. And he had us on the ropes a couple times. We didn't have to win. Uh, you know, People usually misunderstand what went on there and think it was just free money. It wasn't. And we could have lost. And we just had an edge uh, that Andy didn't have. Decades before Barry could play games with $8,000 blinds or post half a million to bet against billionaires, he was just a teenager who enjoyed all games. He played gin rummy and canasta, and he was good at sports. He also understood very early that any competition can be turned into a money-making endeavor. Although it sounds very, I don't know if materialistic the right word or badly directed that I've done so many things for money in my life. It's funny because I wasn't raised materialistically. We were a middle-class family, didn't have a lot of toys and things like that, and valued hard work and accomplishments a lot more than financial gain. But once I was gambling, which happened, you know, pretty much, I think when I was about 12 years old is where I started playing poker and making money out of it, you know, people would make bets on the side. So uh, I would practice things, whether it was free throw shooting, uh, you know, we'd play certain games and I was a caddy. So, it, it, you know, when you're waiting to, to caddy, you, you might be playing some sort of cards or maybe you set up a golf game on the side or whatever. So I would just practice different things, uh, you know, that I knew I could do. I run backwards and time myself just in case someone wanted to bet. I couldn't do it in a certain amount of time and they'd spot me uh, an amount. I would always know how many pull-ups or push-ups I could do. And uh, a lot of that was just so I knew that I'd be on the right side of a bet if it came up spontaneously. Uh, I remember one of my favorite bets was I was pretty good at jumping. I remember my school, I was the only one who, who could uh, high jump their height. I wasn't that tall, so maybe it made it easier. Uh, but it helped me. I could uh, jump up on the, like a garage roof or a house roof very quickly. If it had a gutter, I grabbed the gutter, pull myself up. Even if it didn't, I could, you know, my hands were good enough. I could, you know, just latch myself onto the roof and pull myself up. Well, I could get myself up on a roof. Sometimes we had to do it to run away from maybe not the police, but the neighbors when we did something we shouldn't do. And we'd like hop across fences and houses. I could jump up on a roof in 
a second, pull myself out and jump off, jump out over the fence of the next house, do it again, maybe go down five or six houses doing that. But people would look at me and think, oh, it'd probably be really hard to jump up on a roof. And, you know, I might bet I could do it in 10 seconds. Someone would take the bet. I'd intentionally act like it took me five, get up there as a struggle, you know, make sure I got up and win the bet when really I could have done it in one. So it's just things like that. And that's kind of a lot of times how prop bets go in poker games. People will bet someone can't do something, can't eat. Uh, I never did these things eating the peppers and stuff, but you see all sorts of goofy things that people will bet on. But normally when I made a bet, I already had done it ahead of time and I knew what I could do. For amateur gamblers, the way to find a game is to look for stakes that you can afford and then start playing. But Barry just hinted at a difference that exists for professionals. Knowledge of how to play the game isn't enough, and it helps to go in with an advantage. In college, Barry was already working on the essential skill of finding games where he was a favorite. I think while I was still an undergraduate, we were, we were short of players and, you know, didn't know how to get more players. Then I got this idea, I'll just advertise in the student newspaper. So I, I advertised, you know, poker game, call this number, and I didn't get much of a response. And we still didn't have enough players. You might Maybe one or two people asked about it, probably didn't show up. And then I got this idea, and I, I don't think I anticipated the response I was going to get, but I was trying to make money. And I said, and I thought I was a pretty good poker player at the time. You know, I was the, the biggest winner in our game. So I put an ad in, uh, poker lessons and gave my number. And I got 10 responses, easily enough, obviously, to fill a poker game. And the, and the people are calling and saying, well, who are you to be given poker lessons? I bet you I play better than you. And they were like, people are insulted because that's kind of the way poker is. Everyone thinks their strategy is better than uh, the other person's strategy. Obviously, if you didn't, you'd have a different strategy. So what I got were many people to show up coming to prove that they were better poker players than I was. You know, I remember being asked on the phone and uh, the guy said, well, if you're so good, what are you charging for poker lessons? And I said, nothing. He said, what do you mean nothing? I said, you come over and play me and you can keep whatever you beat me out of and I'll keep whatever I beat you out of. If I win, that's going to be the cost of your poker lesson. And I guess people took that as such a, an affront a that they showed up to play me heads up and, and uh, you know, they didn't do that well. Barry got his bachelor's in computer science from the University of Illinois. And then he went to work on a PhD in math. But he also moved on from beating cash-poor college students to playing people who could afford to lose more. You hope that it's people who could afford the money. You know, I, I in, would never intentionally try to take money from a family person who really needed to take care of their family. Usually, as a, when I was in college, they were the wealthier business people. So they had plenty of money, and I never felt like I was hurting someone. As a matter of fact, it, it did get to where I quit in about 1974. Uh, I went to school at University of Illinois, which is surrounded by farmland. And it was a point where the farmers weren't doing very well. And I remember one day I beat this uh, guy out of money uh, in the game where he lost and had to quit. And he said, yeah, I was going to go out with my wife tonight, but nice going, Barry. I guess I can't do that. And I felt terrible because, you know, a lot of times in something like that, you 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 rationalize, you want to think that when you're taking money from someone, you're not hurting them or doing anything. But, you know, we all know that sometimes that does happen. And I felt bad enough that I said, you know, I mean, part of it is I didn't need the money in, at that point in my life. Uh, I didn't have an extravagant life. And I said, that's it. I don't want to hurt these people. Farming is down. 
and, and I don't want to do this. And I quit for a certain period of time till I got invited because they were doing better. Usually it's the best when you have successful people, they've made money in other ways. And so you don't at all feel like you're hurting anyone. You're just competing and, and winning money. It's important to recognize that learning poker would have been very different in the 70s. Today, there are training sites and videos, and a lot of the game has been solved by computers. But Barry was already making a living in poker before Doyle Brunson published the landmark book, Super System. Barry learned to play before book learning was a thing. The games that I became world-class in were poker, backgammon, and bridge. Uh, Bridge was my favorite, and uh, bridge isn't something I played for money. I could have played professionally. I mean, I would go into bridge clubs and I would win money. You know, I'd travel to Europe, go to a club there. Uh, I remember in London that I liked. You know, I was a good enough player. I would win. And there were clubs like the Cavendish clubs before, like in New York became poker clubs. There were bridge and chess clubs. So, you know, I could, I was a good enough player uh, that I would win at, at that type of stuff. But normally I played bridge for the intellectual challenge. I would play in national tournaments and my partner and I set the record for the least number of master points to win a national event, I remember. But the way you make money at bridge is they pay you to play on a team. Someone who's not that good. And I really wasn't interested. I was making plenty of money playing poker. I didn't want to be on one of these paid teams, so I never did that. Uh, backgammon. What I learned came out of the Mayfair in New York. At, well, I'm sorry, the, the Cavendish in New York and the Cavendish in Chicago. I played in those clubs and I played back in there and you just learn to play. And then eventually books came out and some of them were pretty good. Uh, the first good book was by a guy who ended up playing poker, Paul McGreal. Uh, but by then I was already, you know, kind of too good for that book, but it's still a good book. So when you ask, how do you learn? Well, it's really the same way you look, you learned poker back in the day is you watch what the people who are better than you are doing or what the winning players are doing. And you think about it and, and try to copy it or modify it. And you might say, well, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? And I think that's where my mathematical skills come in. You know, I was uh, getting my PhD in mathematics at the time. And so I'm pretty good at mathematically analyzing things. And, uh, you know, certainly that made me a better poker player that I could really analyze things that way. And, you know, I think I was, you know, I was always good uh, psychologically, too. So that took into account exploiting people's weaknesses at the table, knowing when they're playing bad and how that might change uh, the hands they're playing. You know, I, I didn't use the nomenclature that we have today of ranges and all these different things, probably. I can't remember what how I talked about those things, but I did whatever would be still the right way to learn today. It's just today, you know, the process is, sp- is sped up because you can play so many hands online. You can watch good players playing and see their whole cards. So obviously you can learn a lot faster now than you could have, uh, uh, you know, 50 years ago when I was playing. While Barry was working on his PhD and earning money playing poker, life got in the way. He got married. His new wife had children from a previous marriage. So Barry got a real job because it was the only way they could get custody of the kids. Barry's background in computer science and math made Silicon Valley a natural fit. Then I go to Silicon Valley and they look at my resume and of course they say, well, what have you been doing the last 10 years? It can't be just working on your thesis, right? And I couldn't say that I was a poker player, which is how I made most of my money because there was such a stigma associated with poker in those days. That would look like, you know, I was uh, a real degenerate. 
So what I did confide in them is I said, well, I, I play blackjack. I go on junkets, I play. And anyone who was in the computer field had heard of people playing blackjack. So that was a more socially acceptable type of gambling. And so uh, so it ends up that my the guy who was the, one of the co-presidents of the company, Dennis Coleman, had graduated from Stanford. And a guy who was well-known, some people in game theory and stuff will know the name Stanford Wong, you know, guy went to Stanford. And he, Dennis knew him real well. And he said, you know, Stanford Warren is one of the smartest men I've ever met. When I was, a, you know, he got, his, Dennis got his PhD at, in computer science, I think. And he said, uh, if you're anything like him, we want you on, the, you know, in our company, if you're that smart. And so that's kind of, so the blackjack kind of worked out well. And I never told him about poker. If Barry's bosses couldn't be counted on to understand his poker career, his wife definitely got it. They met playing bridge. And she was also a poker player. Actually, it's hard to imagine a marriage more supportive of a poker lifestyle. I couldn't quit Symantec because if I did, the company had gone under. And I stayed in Silicon Valley uh, working for Symantec for about seven years. In the middle of that, Hold'em became legal in California. No Limit Hold'em was probably my best game at the time. And it didn't exist. People only played lowball in California before that. And my wife was also a lowball player because that's what was legal in California. Uh, and she's calling me up like every day. What are you doing working at the office? I never thought we'd have a life like this. We had such a good life before you took a normal job. And and I'm probably the only wife who's saying, you got to get down to the poker room. The, these car games are so good right now. You're a Hold'em professional. You're, you're a Hold'em expert. And these are people just learning. And I'd say, I can't. I got, you know, I've got too much work to do. So you, I'm sure you have a lot of wives tell their, their husbands, you got to work and you, can, you don't go to the card room. Mine was the opposite. So uh, eventually uh, the company got too big. It got to be over a thousand people from five when I started. And uh, with Holden being legal, I finally said, you know, I've got to, I've got to quit working uh, and go back to playing poker. And even between products, I always made more money playing poker than I could as a programmer at Symantec. And we lived in good areas and lived a good life still. And I would have to take like the month off or so between products and just play poker straight for that month to pay off our credit bills and things. Barry's Edge wasn't limited to superior strategy or being able to select the best opponents. He also found other structural edges. I got into a lot of good situations where I could make money and it was really hard for me to lose. Uh, like I said, when Hold'em came to California, I was already a, you know, a, you know, a top player. So I'm playing against people just learning how to play. It was easy. You know, I wasn't going to lose. I, I, and I played, I used to play poker at these games where, you know, in Palo Alto, the, the game closed at, uh, the, the club closed at two o'clock, the Nolan Hold'em game. But in San Bruno at Artichoke Joe's, they'd have these games go all night. And I played, you know, I didn't even enjoy it, but I remember I kept track. I played 21 times and I won 20. And I would play until the last person gave up because I like to play heads up more than anything. I'd play into the next day until the guy either went broke or just couldn't handle it anymore. And, and my point of it is that I was better than the people I was playing against. It would be really hard for me to have a losing week, let alone a losing month or certainly never a losing year. Again, there was a big skill gap, and there was one other big advantage. I used to think it was because I was just so much better than other people, but that even wasn't the truth. I I'd be kidding myself. I would sleep till, let's say, 5 or 6 o'clock, 
and be totally rested. And I go in against and play against business people who had worked a full shift. And it's such a huge advantage that I didn't, you know, here I'm thinking, oh, I'm this great poker player, right? I'm beating up on these people. Until I worked at Symantec and a couple times I would go to the club after working and I would come in at six o'clock after working my normal business thing. And my brain was fried. And I noticed because I'm keeping track of things. I, I didn't play during the week, but I play, let's say, on a Friday night and a Saturday night. And I was winning like 20% of the time on Friday night. Why? Because I worked all day and I was tired. I didn't drink, but you see a lot of these people not only work, but they want to have a drink after work, whatever. I was just, again, totally rested when I was a professional playing as people who weren't. That's such a huge edge that it's hard for anyone to overcome. The poker stories from this era are full of tales of cheating. Although, to be fair, that could be a function of the fact that cheating stories are vivid and likely to stick in our brains. I asked Barry about cheating, and he said that sure, it happened. But if you focus on a few incidents, you would miss that overall, poker is essentially honest. Uh, you know, I played in a casino in Palo Alto where they were, in, you know, cards that had markings that you could see with an infrared camera. Uh, you know, I've had people that were, you know, like floor men bring in decks. You know, obviously, since I was from Illinois, originally we only had home games, not casinos. So, yeah, even in college, we had people signaling to each other, playing high-low games. We had people trying to mark the card. We had people who could stack the deck, you know, a certain way. So, yeah, of course, I ran, you know, if you're going to, uh, you know, play poker, you're going to run into people who are who will try to cheat. And you might say, oh, wow, you know, poker is kind of a dangerous business. Well, it ends up anything for money in any business. There are people who are trying to cheat at it and steal money and get it in an unethical way. And whether it's insider trading, like I had a friend who I taught about betting sports and arbitraging. He's a friend of mine in graduate school, and he eventually became a stock options trader. And he offered me to be a, a partner. He said, you know, that stuff where you taught me how to bet sports, I use it, uh, you know, that arbitraging, I use it in my daily business. That's why I've made, uh, you know, a million dollars in my business. And I said, yeah, but so many shady things go in the stock markets of people controlling prices. I'm a poker player because that's a more honest way to gamble. Uh, and I always feel that poker is more honest than those other things like the market and business because we have an honor code. And uh, so, uh, you know, it got that stigma because it's just gambling and you're just playing for money. But really, there's a lot of honor in it, uh, not like most people would think. A general rule for all gambling is that the new money coming into the system, the money that props up the house and funds professionals, will come from recreational players. That doesn't mean amateurs don't take it seriously, but they're not trying to make a living at it. So it's important that they actually enjoy playing. You know, we're all going to lose sometimes, and you want to act like, okay, you got me, and not be a jerk about it, and hopefully you'll get reciprocated and, you know, by the people who lose and by the other professional will see that's the right way to handle yourself. You, you know, because for the people who aren't professionals, you want to make it something they want to do. You know, we had, I was playing in this game a few years ago where we had this one guy who was a businessman, you know, doing pretty well. And he would bring $5,000 to the poker game. And he would bring that $5,000 kind of like you and I might bring $20 to go to the movie. We'd see a movie, we'd feel, okay, cost $20, we had a good experience. He would bring that 5000 maybe once or twice a week to the game, and he would want a, a, you know, a three or four hour experience playing poker, enjoying himself, maybe having a few drinks, having some good food, and when he was done with his $5,000, he'd go home. And uh, he lost like about the first 
10 to 15 times I saw him play. But then one night he got pretty hot and he just started winning. And I'm looking over at him and uh, and I see he's got 15,000 in front of him. And I said to uh, Joshua, was his name? I said, uh, hey, why don't you take the win and go home? You know, I, I've, you've had a tough time, you know, the last few weeks. And he said, no, I'm enjoying myself. I'm not going home. And I said, well, when are you going to go home? He says, well, when I lose this, I'm going to go home. You know, he could afford it. And like, you know, a lot of times you don't understand the way other people look at something and how they look at things differently than you do. And that was his thing. You know, he was going to have a good time playing poker. He's treated like a VIP, enjoyed the experience. And and I felt bad. The poor guy, it took him 24 hours to lose that money he had in front of him and the rest of it so he could go home. <laughs> you know, and, and he, he just wouldn't quit until he was until it was gone because that's what he paid for. During Barry's career, he played against some extremely wealthy people. Earlier, he mentioned Andy Beal, but there were others. In Los Angeles, one of the wealthiest poker enthusiasts was the late Lakers owner, Dr. Jerry Buss. People play poker for different reasons, and some is for the competition. I remember one of the nicest guys uh, that people know uh, that I play with is Jerry Buss. I used to play with him, the uh, uh, you know, the owner of the Lakers. And Jerry used to say, you know, I can't play on the court with Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, obviously, but I can play in a poker game with the greatest players in the world and compete against them, and I can win sometimes. And he really liked that. Uh, and Jerry was a good card player and a you know, fun guy to be around. As a, as a poker player, a lot of times I'll want the game to be these wealthy businessmen who I, you know, where I can play for high stakes and win a lot of money. And one time, one of the guy who arranged the game called Jerry up and he said, hey, Jerry, I got the best game for you to play in. And he rattled off names. He said, you know, I got Sam, the butcher, or the guy who owns the, the, the butcher shop. He's a horrible player. And I got this other guy uh, that, you know, uh, he's made, you know, he's a real wealthy guy and horrible player. He said, I got a whole table of people that you're better than. He said this to Jerry. Jerry said, well, I don't want to play in that game. And Yosh was the guy, Yosh Nakano. Some people know his name. And and he was a friend of Jerry's. And, and Yosh said, what do you mean, Jerry? You can easily make money in this game. And Jerry said, I'm not playing for the money. I've got money. I'm playing for the competition. He says, get me Barry and Johnny Chan and named a few other pros. That's who I want to play against. I want to play against the best players because when I win, I really feel good. I'm not going to feel good beating these knuckleheads. I want to pause for a second to ask what might be a dumb question, which is, in a match between a professional player like Barry Greenstein and a rich guy like Jerry Buss or Andy Beal, who should we be rooting for? I realize that the obvious answer is, who cares? But we're humans, and so having a rooting interest comes naturally. In some sense, the rich guys are actually the underdogs, so maybe our rooting interest would drift their way. Or maybe the pros are the underdogs. Because while Jerry Buss could sustain almost endless losses, poker players have a finite bankroll. And without that bankroll, they can't make a living. So a large loss could cripple them. And there are other ways that our values might make it complicated to pick a side. We might want to believe in the power of hard work and directed effort, but does that mean we would side with a player like Andy Beal, who trained obsessively to get better? Or would we root for pros that spend a lifetime honing their craft? I think the answer is all of the above. We're going to root for the pros sometimes and the billionaires other times. It's one of the things that makes poker so compelling. In poker, 
Every hand has a different hero. Of course, this idea has limits. One of Barry's common opponents was noted pornographer and publisher of Hustler magazine, Larry Flint. Yeah, of course. When I first went to Larry Flint's house, yeah, obviously that was a real experience. Because Larry was in a wheelchair, he used to live in a mansion. So we had this mansion crammed into a, I don't know, a 2,000 square foot house. He had taken all the knickknacks and things. You could barely walk around his house. So, it, of course, it was a new experience dealing with Larry and seeing his involvement in politics and all the other things that he did. But to me, it was the perfect situation. It's the old taking from the rich and giving to the poor type of thing. I never had to feel bad if I beat Larry out of money at poker. He had plenty of money. And not only that, no one's ever going to say, hey, you beat this pornographer out of money. You took it from this good guy, right? They'd say, hey, that's good. You know, a lot of people, you know, have a negative view of pornography and you're taking some of that money and going to do good things with it. Even if Barry made a living winning money from recreational players, he didn't mistake their lack of skill for lack of intelligence. A lot of times people say, boy, that guy is really a dummy. Look at how uh, that doctor or whatever, look at how bad he is at poker. And I'll say, he's a doctor. He's may not be good at poker because he spent his life getting, you know, going and getting his uh, his medical degree and doing some really good things. You also hear other pokers playing. He's not a stupid person. He's just not as skilled at poker as we are because we spent our education getting good at poker. So those are the kind of people that you often play with. And it's good to be around those kind of successful people because it often gives you inroads maybe into business or whatever they're in where uh, maybe you'll get involved and maybe they'll teach you something about the things they're good at. So, you know, you get educated in that way. I asked Barry whether it was important to have a network of other poker players as colleagues, but he said that there are some reasons to keep a healthy distance from other players. I intentionally was a loner, let's say before the poker boom. Uh, I was a traveling player to different areas. I didn't make friends and I didn't want to because I didn't want to be a codependent on their problems. And the obvious problems are losing money and someone wanted to borrow from you. I didn't want to get into that. Or maybe someone wanted to stake you. I didn't want to stake them. I didn't want to get into that. And some of them, of course, get into drinking and drugs, and I didn't do that kind of stuff. So I really had no friends, and you know, I I classified them usually as poker friends. I don't want to say no because someone's going to hear this and get insulted. But there were very few that I ever, let's say, went out to dinner with, okay? That would be a friend. Knew my wife, right? That would be a friend. I might have golfed with them, but that was for money. If I was around them, it was to try to beat them out of money. So you see what I'm saying? It's a different kind of friendship. It's a competition friendship. So so no, I, I, I wasn't playing poker to make friends. In the early 2000s, a boom hit the poker world, and it brought a tsunami of money while also creating a number of celebrities. To give you a sense of how much money came into the system, consider that every single year from 1991 to 1999, the winner of the World Series of Poker main event was paid $1 million. Starting in 2000, that number increased every year until it peaked in 2006, when main event champion Jamie Gold won $12 million. I asked Barry how this all affected him, and he said that he was already playing for very high stakes by then, but suddenly people knew who he was. When one of my kids was in second grade, uh, they had one of those dress up as your uh, as what your father does for work at school type of thing. And my kid comes, my son, uh, Nathaniel comes to me and says, uh, what, what am I supposed to wear? 
And I said, well, you can't say I'm a poker player, you know, because they won't understand that. Uh, just say I'm an investor, which, you know, I do. I invest in the stock market and just wear a hat and a tie and say, you know, you, uh, I invest in the stock market, which is something I did. So it was something that we certainly would never tell uh, his teachers that I was a professional poker player. That would look terrible, right? I even once got arrested when police saw my nice house and they asked me what I do for a living. And I said, I was a professional poker player. And the guy looks at me and says, yeah, right. Believe it or not, I got arrested the next day because I just assumed I was some sort of uh, criminal. Uh, and, you know, you know, obviously I didn't buy that house playing poker. So that's what it was before the poker boom. Um, but now go into the poker boom. And one of my sons was in high school, and I think he got caught with some weed or something. I can't remember. And he got suspended, and I got called to the principal's office. And the principal, I come in, and I'm, you know, I'm upset at my kid, of course, and ready to talk. And the principal said, hey, before we talk about, uh, I don't want to even name which kid it was, I went to Vegas last week, and I was doing this, and I was wondering if you think I was, you know, playing blackjack the right way. He starts talking about his trip to Las Vegas. And I'm saying, I want to talk about my son. And he's like, I know, it's, you know, it's understandable what your son did, but, you know, you know, you know, you know these things. And like, that's what the, you know, if I went into school, they knew me as the professional poker player. And they knew me in many ways because I made a lot of money. I donated money to the, you know, the educational foundations, bought computers for the schools and stuff like that. So, you know, I was known that way too. But poker player from being something I would have to hide became something that, again, I was a, somewhat of a celebrity. So, so that's how I felt the poker boom, you know, the way people acted towards me. For Barry's generation, there was only one way to learn, trial and error. So he spent a career learning hard lessons. In 2005, he put his accumulated wisdom into a book titled Ace on the River, where he offered lessons like, don't fall in love with getting back to even. Don't try to get to a certain point. Like so many people will say, hey, I'm $100. I'm losing $100. They bought him for $10,000. I want to get even. And then I'll go home. That's a really big mistake. You know, risking that $100 where if things start going south, you'll probably lose the whole 10000 Maybe you won't. Most of the time you'll get the 100 and go. But maybe 10 times, 20 times you'll win that 100 or a few hundred and go home. But that time you go south and you lose that whole 10000 uh, You know, there are, Some people are going to be listening and say, well, if you're a skilled player, your mathematical expectation, mathematical expectation was positive. So mathematically, you didn't do anything wrong trying to win that extra 100 but that's because they don't understand psychologically what they were doing wrong. Psychologically, what was going to happen to you when you lose that 10,000 is you're going to probably not sleep very well that night. You're going to come back the next day chasing it, maybe lose another 10,000. You will put yourself in a very bad frame of mind. And so the things I've learned is don't chase that type of stuff when you're losing. Set a time when you're going to quit or an amount you're going to quit. Come back, try to win it the next day. It'll be easier the next day. Those are really important lessons. And and there were so many lessons I had that in 2005, I wrote a book that had, uh, you know, that a lot of people heard of based on the river, uh, that had really a lot of these lessons of the pitfalls and things you shouldn't do. And I would have people come up to me and say, boy, you know, you had a really good, a lot of good advice in there. He said, you know, you're so smart. You know, you, you know all these things about playing poker. And I said, no, it's not that I'm so smart. I just kept track of all the stupid things I've done gambling in my life, and I put them in a book. So uh, I, I, I just maybe either have a better memory for those things. Like most people, when they do those stupid things, they don't want to admit that to themselves. So they like 
you know, put their hands over their ears figuratively and say, I don't even want to think about what I just did. Whereas I'm the type of person that will go home and think about that was really stupid. And when I was writing a book, I wrote it down. And uh, so then people say, okay, well, maybe, yeah, you know, I tell them I did all the stupid things that you've done. And hopefully I've learned some less. They say, oh, well, that's great. You've learned your lessons. And then I say, well, no, that's actually not true either. I still do stupid things, but hopefully not as bad as as people who are like a lot of times, uh, you know, kind of reminds me of the Lee Trevino quote where someone asked him, hey, when you're playing golf, do you, do you ever choke? He'd say, yeah, you know, I choke, but I look around me and I see people choking worse than I do. So I do pretty well. And it's kind of the same thing at poker. I do a lot of these stupid things still, and I have to catch myself and make myself quit and maybe not do as bad. But other people usually do these things worse than I do, so I still have an advantage overall. Barry might have written his book in 2005, but that didn't mean he was done learning. When the U.S. government went after the online poker sites and the boom turned into a bust, Barry paid for more expensive experience. No, I managed my money very badly in many ways. First of all, invested in stocks for the most part that didn't do well. And just like you said, I did think it was something that was going to go on forever. I'd represented poker stars. You know, a lot of people know I gave money away to charity. I was given, you know, a large percentage of the cash I had to charity because I didn't think I needed money because I'm getting, I'm, I have this contract. Didn't think poker stars were ever going to fire me. Uh, I could always make money. I could always go anywhere and people would pay me to play poker. People would pay me to put a patch on, to wear a shirt, all these things. So I didn't think I'd ever have to worry about money for the rest of my life. But I was obviously very naive. Uh, and or Maybe naive is not the right word, but you have to protect yourself. You have to salt money away so that nothing bad can happen uh, that can hurt you. Because I had plenty of money that I never would need money again. But what happened is... Uh, Poker gets shut down in the United States. My salary for poker starts keeps going down and down because they don't need me as a U.S. representative. Poker, it's harder to, to, to win at poker. Rake in the games go up. The stakes go down. Because, again, a lot of the high-stakes poker was fueled from money coming out of the online sites. So lots of things happened. And then another thing happened that still exists today that a lot of people don't know. Poker became privatized. And what that meant is I no longer was getting invited to good poker games. You hear about some high-stakes poker games in L.A. They're not going to invite me there. Even online, we have, there are private games. If I win, they say, we don't want you to play anymore. I always thought there will always be good games to play in, but that didn't happen either. That didn't stay true either. I learned earlier that when a game is good and when you're really making money, stick at it and, and make as much as you can because it might disappear, which happened at different points in my life. And this is kind of the same kind of thing that happened. Games disappeared. And another factor, all this stuff happened when I was almost 60 years old, you know, in my late 50s. And the other thing, you know, I thought I'd never have to worry. But when I was, let's say, 30, I really didn't care who I played against. Give me a table of people who think they're the top professionals. I'm still going to do really well. I don't care what their names are. And I did. But now put me in my 50s and 60s and let me try to have me compete against the best players they'll let me play in the whatever the biggest game in the Bellagio is but they're 20 and 30 years younger than I am and uh, now it's not so easy anymore because even things like playing heads up which used to be something I like to do that's a young person's game and uh, you're just not going to process things as quickly uh, as you do as you're older and and frankly I'm, I wouldn't win 
against the top players. Uh, and, and, and other things that happen is people specialize. If someone is a professional Potlum and Omaha player, I'd be foolish. Maybe if I got good when I was 30 years old, I'd have a shot because I was a pretty good poker player. But at six years old, you know, I'm drawing dead against someone who's specialized on one game, where I'm someone who tries to play all the games, plays mixed games. And you, you just have to learn, especially as you get older, that someone who's a specialist is going to beat someone who's a top player because you, your game deteriorates at each of the games as you get to learn more games. And not only more games, but there's another differentiation. That's online poker versus live poker. I'm a better live poker player. Reading people, trying to figure out what they're going to do by looking at them. Live tells are very, very underrated. But you'll hear online players say live tells are very overrated because they're not good at that, because they learned online. So there have always been situations where there are people that I can beat live, but I can't beat them online. And so they'll want me to join them online, and they'll, they're better than I am. And not only that, they have some tools a lot of times to help them, you know, keep track of how I play and how often I bluff and percentage of times I do things. Live, they don't have those tools. And so there are all sorts of reasons that there are many, many people, thousands of people who probably can beat me online, but can't beat me live. Barry says that poker is capitalism at its essence. Just like in business, it's a competition where the winner will leave with the money. Even though Barry sees poker and capitalism with clear eyes, that doesn't mean he was always entirely comfortable with his role in the system. For example, the flexible lifestyle and the money were positives for Barry and his family. But he said there were also drawbacks. And the downside is it doesn't look like you're working hard to your kids when you're a professional gambler. It looks like you're just playing a game and you come home and there's more money in the bank as a result. How did I balance family and uh, poker? And the answer is not very well. But the answer also to how did I balance poker and work is also not very well. And you see that all the time in people who are financially successful, that they make money and they throw money at their family and you have a nice house and nice things and nice toys and occasional nice vacation. But did you really instill the right work ethic in your kids did you raise them with the right values when, of course, you had to work so hard that you had to have a nanny there uh, you know, with your kids instead of you? And so I don't want to say I failed miserably, but I, what I will say is any times things didn't work out for my kids, let's say even as teenagers in their 20s, whatever, that they didn't have the values I might have wanted, they didn't have the work ethic I might have wanted, and that I learned by being you know, middle class, uh, growing up in a middle class environment and 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 uh, valuing those things, you know, I blame myself and I blame, uh, you know, how I didn't do a good enough job. So it, it's uh, difficult to do it right. That's, uh, that's about all I can say. And obviously a lot of things I would have done differently. Barry tried to strike a compromise between his poker career and the sense that more was required of him than simply sitting in card rooms and making money. The best evidence for the attempt in middle ground is the amount he gave to charity. He was known as the Robin Hood of poker because at one point he was paying out of his own pocket to enter tournaments and then giving 100% of the proceeds to charity if he did win anything. Barry has also been known to mentor and befriend younger players, the most successful of which is Phil Ivey, who probably has a better claim than anyone else to being the best poker player of the last 20 years. He had won his first bracelet. I think it was in Pot Limit, Omaha. 
And I think it was against Amarillo Slim Heads Up, if I'm not mistaken. And he was about 23 years old. And then someone pointed him out and said, hey, this kid's really good. He's going to be the next big thing in poker. And that was the first time I saw him. I didn't think about it. But then he was at my table, maybe a year later, and he was terrible. It was no limit hold him. He had no idea what he was doing. And uh, I laughed. I said, this is the next big thing. I said, you're not going to believe this. That kid who just went broke, someone told me he was going to be a great poker player. I said, he can't, you know, he can't even spell poker. Phil was a stud player. He didn't know the other games. But he won that bracelet, and even some of the early things he did in poker were just on his innate skills and not knowing the games. The way he learned is he kind of went away in his room or house or whatever, and he spent a couple years playing online. And when he came out of that, he was already a really, really good player. He just has this kind of mind that he was able to process what he did wrong and what would have worked better. He had kind of like an encyclopedic memory for the hands he played. And it was amazing. I just didn't know. A lot of times you don't know someone's that smart, especially if they're not like academically smart. You don't see it. And so initially, you know, again, I didn't know Phil that well. But once I got to know him and I'd hear people say he's like an idiot savant or something. No, he's just an intelligent person. And he also had good control of himself. Very thoughtful person. I got to meet, you know, his parents and stuff, especially his grandfather, actually. Very intelligent guy, really a good psychological view of things. And Phil just was, he's just the person who had every, he had the right stuff. Barry has a new project that he's working on, which balances his talent for playing games with his background in software. He's working with the startup Delio Poker. Uh, because of the pandemic, I was shut down. I couldn't play poker. So, you know, I always try to not just sit there and do nothing. I want to work on a project. So I got involved in a project, uh, an online poker project where we have webcams. Because what I noticed during the pandemic was a lot of people, they're playing on these, you know, the established sites, poker stars or and whatever. You know, I used to represent poker stars. But they're also talking to their friends on the phone or maybe doing a, a video conferencing. And if you could combine that too, and and I end up with a group that was uh, happened to be working on that project, they brought me in as an advisor, and uh, you know, Delio Poker is the name. Now that my kids know that I'm working on software, because really these online sites are software companies that happen to be poker sites, they look at that as work, just like when I worked at Semantic. That's kind of more a real job than being a poker player. So you know, they'll be you know, my kids are all grown up, but they'll be talking to me. Oh, what are you working on now? It's kind of a different thing than, oh, you're going to the club trying to, you know, play poker. It's play poker. It's not work. You know what I'm saying? But what I'm doing now is real work. So my kids like that I'm doing real work again. When I saw the idea for Delio, I got it immediately. I have friends in various places, and we would be happy to play together online if there was anything social about the experience. So Delio seems like a good idea. But startups are their own gamble. And a good idea is no guarantee of winning. Although, it sounds like part of the payoff for Barry might be in actually doing the work. And the reason I stuck with this project, they just wanted me as mainly a poker ambassador to start. But like I said, programming is a passion. And I get to design. That was, first of all, I, you know, I worked for PokerStars for a while. They wanted me to sign me as ambassador for a few years. It wasn't until they let me decide 
you know, to the, the word we use in poker terminology is spec out the different games. So the mix games, I write the specs for the programmers, right? I didn't do the programming in poker stars. So I'm not doing the programming here, but I do spec things out of how, as how it should, should look. So I'm having fun interacting with the programmers, you know, advising them uh, of things that aren't right poker wise and uh, building the ambassador team. I'm having fun with that. I'm involved with the marketing. I'm involved in all aspects of the company. So to me, that's being productive. And if you ask, you know, what kind of misgivings I might have about being a professional poker player, it takes away from my time being productive, from producing something. And so, you know, I'm doing some of that now, so I'm enjoying it. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Barry Greenstein. I'll put links in the show notes so you can follow him on Twitter and also find Delio Poker. As a footnote to this episode, there's a book called The Professor, The Banker, and The Suicide King, which tells the story of Andy Beal's matches with the high-stakes pros. I'll also put a link to that book in the show notes, as well as Barry Greenstein's book, Ace on the River. You can follow the show on Twitter at Half Kelly. You can also email us at riskofruinpod at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at halfkelly.com. Mm-hmm.